you have a copy of the scriptures, I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 88 with me today. Psalm chapter 88. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very forthright and honest with you this morning. Psalm 88, this is of the five psalms we're going to look at, uh, the absolute heaviest of all of them. And so I uh, wanted to start a little lighthearted by joking about bringing in that extra stuff with uh, my team because, goodness, this is just going to be heavy. And so I want us to sit in the weight of Psalm 88 this morning and uh, just, just let the Lord kind of teach us. I think it's a timely word. Um, I've talked to many of you this week and this morning and then just personally. Um, I think it's going to be a timely word for us as we talk about this idea of lamenting in the Scriptures. And so I'm going to ask you to actually remain seated this morning. Traditionally, we would stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, but if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can follow along in Psalm 88 or it'll be up on our screen as well. You can follow along. Um, but let's just feel the weight of God's Word this morning. Feel the emotion and uh, what this individual that wrote this is feeling and uh, then we'll, we'll walk through this together. Psalm 88, starting in verse 1, the writer says this, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. For I've had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. I'm counted among those going down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I am like the slain lying in the grave, who you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. Verse 6, you've put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the depths, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You've distanced me from, you've distanced my friends from me and you've made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in and I cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long and I spread out my hands to you. Then he asks this series of questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. Lord, why do you reject me? Why are you hiding your face from me? From my youth, I've been suffering and I'm near death. I suffer your horrors. I am desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. Verse 18, you have distanced loved one and neighbor from me and darkness is my only friend. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now as we walk through, God, what is a heavy portion of Scripture? That, Father, your Spirit would be very present among us today. In the midst of the emotion that we sense in this passage, would you use this to draw us to a deeper relationship with Jesus? Would you use this to draw us to a deeper understanding of your goodness and kindness as God over all? God, would you give us those ears as we pray each week, ears to hear directly from you. Hearts, God, that are sensitive and soft to not just hear, but to receive your word, Lord. And as we receive your word, help us to live it out and to do something with it as we walk out these truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this series that we've now week two on exploring the Psalms, we've really been centered around this main idea, this quote that we gave you last week, that the Bible is God talking to us, yet in the Psalms we learn how to talk to God. 
The Bible is God talking to us, yet in the Psalms we learn how to talk to God. And this week we're going to be looking at this practice and idea of lamenting in the Scriptures. Last week we looked at praising God, praising God for who He is and what He's done. This week is lamenting. It's interesting in our copy of the Scriptures, there's 150 Psalms in your Bible, whatever copy you have, 150 individual Psalms. Each one of those written by different authors, different sections and subsections, some by King David, some by King Solomon, some by the sons of Korah, Asaph, other authors like Moses. But what's interesting is of those 150 psalms, 42 of them are actually psalms of lament. 42 of the 150, roughly one in three are psalms of lament where the author teaches us and shows us what it looks like to express grief and sorrow to God. We think of this idea of lament, if that's a foreign term to you. It's this um, expression that's found when our hearts are broken over a situation where maybe you feel helpless in a current circumstance in which you find yourself or you're grieving sin in your life or the sin of someone else. Yet it's interesting to me, and maybe you felt this same way as you first maybe read this psalm here a moment ago, Psalm 88. I wonder if lament is a foreign word and a foreign concept to so many of us. I wonder if lament is something that's very foreign to us because um, if we're honest, and I know I, I struggle with this, it's not a word that I commonly use. It's not even a word in our Christian circles that we discuss very often because lament is something that I just don't think many of us, if we're honest, we engage in, but the scriptures are full of lament, one third of the Psalms. There's an entire book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. It's a, a one long prayer of lament. You can read over and over in the gospel where our Lord Jesus lamented several times there in the scriptures. Other places also talk of lament where people are lamenting over sin, helplessness, or circumstances. But I also think lament is important because it helps strengthen our theology. Sometimes we run from lament, but when we actually engage the scriptures and see what God wants to teach us on how we need to lament, it's going to strengthen our theology. It will strengthen how we understand God and how we are to relate to him. It teaches us through the practice of lament to place our hearts, even when they're broken, into a, the hands of a faithful God named Jesus, the one who is the mender and restorer of our hearts. I misspoke last week, and I apologize. I said that each psalm that we were going to look at would be written by David. But this psalm that we actually chose several weeks ago was written by the sons of Korah. This one was not actually written by David. And you may be asking, who are these people? If you look at Psalm 88, the very first line before you get to verse 1, it likely says this, a song. And then it says this phrase, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Not to get too in-depth with who these individuals were, but just very simply, they were worship leaders in the tabernacle. We briefly explored that last week. There were different groups that David had assigned to lead worship in the tabernacle to give God the praise that he was deserving of. Second thing you're going to notice right before you get to verse 1 is some really long words that are hard to pronounce. What do those mean? Let me give you two things there if you want to kind of circle those words like uh, masquil and uh, the other word there I'm not even going to like attempt to pronounce for you. Simply what those means is, is first it was meant to impart wisdom. So this was a psalm that was meant to impart wisdom to the person who was singing it. But also as you sang it, it was meant to be sung in a tone of humility. That as we sing this song, it was meant to be done in a tone of, tone of humility. But, but don't miss what I kept saying there. That first two words, it was a song. 
Literally, this, this author, I mean, has phrases in here like, I'm slain, lying in the grave. I'm in the lowest part of the pit. God, your wrath is pouring out upon me. Can you imagine singing that in the tabernacle to God? I told Pastor Joe I thought about picking up a guitar this week and just like singing a little ditty for you, something like, my life is the worst, things are terrible. I shouldn't sing, right? I mean, that's what's like going on here. The, the author here is in deep and utter despair and sorrow, yet it was still a song that was sung in worship to God. And I want to show you why here in just a moment. Also, a question that maybe you're thinking, if there's 42 psalms of lament, why Psalm 88? What makes this one significant compared to the other 41 psalms that are in our scriptures? Here's what makes this psalm interesting, and we're going to see this in verse 18. This is the only one of 42 psalms in our copy of the scriptures that doesn't really come to a resolution. It's the only one of the 42 psalms of lament that doesn't come to a resolution. Typically, there's a traditional flow of a psalm of lament. You see desperation, petition, resolution. That's typically kind of this thematic arch that the, the psalms of lament would possess. They would say something like, God, I have this problem. That's desperation. Then they'd go to, you're the only one that can fix it. That's petitioning God. And then they would end with, praise be to God. He is the God of my salvation. He's resolved everything. That's the resolution of the lament. But Psalm 88 doesn't follow that flow. It's all mixed up. Look at verse 18 again. It doesn't end with the phrase like similar. So many of them do. You're the God of my salvation. What does he say? You've distanced loved one and neighbor from me. I have no friends anymore, he says. And he says, darkness is my only friend. You picture this guy sitting in a corner all by himself with no one around him as he's still crying out for help, petitioning God. I'm alone, desperate, and in darkness. It doesn't resolve itself necessarily. We just see the author to the point of desperation. I want us to look at three things this morning to help us understand the Psalms of Lament. And I, I, I hope that this is helpful for you as we talk about really how to lament and talk to God in this kind of a, a posture. The first one is this. Let's talk about the place of feelings in our life. The place of feeling in our lives. As we read through that Psalm, you can't deny the reality of what this guy is feeling. Something has happened to him or something is happening to him that is driving him to this point of desperation and a point of, of brokenness. Look at verse 3 in your Bible again. It'll be up on the screen as well. He says, for I have had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. So without being too candid here, basically what he's saying is I've reached my breaking point. Like if there was a cap on how much one human being could possibly endure, he says, I've not only exceeded it, I'm now overflowing from it. Uh, there's not much more that I could possibly take. To the point where, look at what he says at the end of verse 3, where I, I feel like I'm dying. Sheol, the place of the dead in the Old Testament, I, I feel like I'm dying. I have so much going on, so much weighing upon me, so much is falling apart around me that I feel like I'm dying. I'm just as good as dead. How much more can I take? What more can I endure? Good week to show up to church, my friends. Yet how often do we feel that with God? You've been there? Are you there this week? God, I can't take much more. I turn this way and the walls are collapsing. I turn this way, the walls are collapsing. And I look forward and there's just pain and turmoil. I look behind and that's all there is too. God, how much more can I take? I don't know if I can bear any more of this. And the author expresses that to God. But then it gets worse. It doesn't get better. Look at verse 5, the second part. 
I'm, I'm like the slain lying in the grave whom you no longer remember and who's cut off from your care. So he's talking directly to God here, and he says, in the midst of everything collapsing and I just can't endure anymore, he says, I feel like you've just left me for dead, God, and you've completely forgotten me. That could be the only explanation for what I'm feeling, is that, Lord, for some reason, you've cut me off from your care. You've severed me from relationship with you. And then look at verse 6. We've got to walk through the muck before we can get to the light here, right? He says in, in verse 6, he says, you've put me in the lowest part of the pit, the darkest places, and in the depths. What, what does he say? God, it's all bearing down on me. I must be cut off from you. I'm lonely. I can't endure anymore. He says, on top of that, Lord, uh, you've put me in a hell on earth. I mean to be too crass there, but you've put me on a, a hell on earth. God, I'm stuck in this dark pit where not even you would set foot. I'm in the darkest farthest corner of the darkest pit here, Lord, and I'm cut off from you, and I got nothing less distant, and you don't seem to care about me. There's a lot of emotion being expressed through this author. Yet I, I think we could relate to this in some ways, at some times, in some seasons. But he doesn't stop there. It's like, Aaron, stop heaping all this stuff on us. I promise we're getting to the light here in a few moments. Not only does he feel this weight and he feels abandoned, but then he asks an important question. Why is God mad at me? What have I done? What did I do wrong to make God so angry with me? Verse 7, he said, your, your wrath is weighing heavily upon me and you've overwhelmed me with your waves. What's, what's the question? God, what have I done wrong to you that would cause me to have to bear the weight of your wrath against me? That's what he's wondering. He can't figure it out. He feels like God is almost bullying him in, in this, this picture. It's like a guy drowning at sea. Maybe you've been to the ocean before and you got a little too deep. It's this picture of this wave crashing over you and you go under the water. And as soon as you go up to gasp that breath of air, what happens? Another wave knocks you under again. And no matter how hard you try, you can't catch your next breath. He's wondering how much more can one person take? But keep going here. Notice at the end of verse 7, I think this is important. You probably see this in your Bible, a five-letter word, selah. As there's arguments among Hebrew scholars what that word necessarily meant, but most tend to agree that that's a musical term. That means pause and reflect. Imagine that if you were singing this song in the tabernacle and you've said, Lord, I'm falling apart. There's so much going against me. Why are you vengeful and wrathful against me? That in the tabernacle that nobody would sing anymore. And they would simply play music in the background, and it was meant to invoke the emotion of pausing and reflecting on what you've just heard. And you just sit in the weight of what was just proclaimed. But he keeps on going. He doesn't stop there. He says, all this stuff is going on around me. But then look at verse 8. He says, you've distanced my friends from me, and you've made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in, and I, I can't go out. We can't verify this necessarily. But it's actually believed that perhaps the author was suffering from leprosy. If you know what leprosy is, it's a skin disease. You were outcast from society if you had that. As he says to us right there, I, I feel distant from God because God's bear, like bearing this wrath against me, but also from my friends. None of them are around me anymore. They're all gone. They view me as repulsive. That was pretty likely of someone who was a leper. So we keep reading the same theme throughout this psalm. 
overwhelmed by circumstances, separated from God, asking, what did I do to deserve all of this? What can we learn so far? And then we're going to get into the, the better stuff, I promise. Let me give you a few lessons. Write these down. First off, God is not intimidated by how you feel. Can I say that again? God is not intimidated by how you feel. If you're like me, I don't like to process my emotions. I've gotten real good at taking my emotions from my brain to my throat to my stomach, and you leave them there. But God is not intimidated by our emotions. He created us as emotional beings. We were never intended to hide our emotions, disguise our emotions, bury them, or cover them up. God created us with emotion. We forget so often that Jesus lived as we lived. He was a human with emotion. He felt it. He felt despair and sorrow, and he expressed that to God. God's not intimidated by how you feel. I was telling Pastor Joe earlier this week that sometimes when I pray about a very tough, hard circumstance that is really weighing down upon me, sometimes the only extent of my prayer is, God, uh, would you just be with me in this? God, would you resolve this? Lord, would you just fix it? Where sometimes I think we need to come to the Lord in the rawness of our emotions and be like, God, this is the worst. Lord, I don't understand what I did to make you mad, but it sure feels like you're ticked off with me and I can't figure it out. I think sometimes, I know I am, I'm afraid to do that with God. He's not intimidated by my emotions. He's not. We see that throughout the Psalms. Number two, relationships are formed in authentic conversations, not cookie-cutter responses. Listen, the author's not holding back in how he's talking to God. He's honest, he's real, and he's crying out to him. I wonder if our relationships with God would reach a new level of depth if rather than always being surface level with our Jesus, we got a little bit more raw with what was going on in our hearts. He already knows. He's just waiting for us to tell him. Jesus knows how we're feeling. If he's not intimidated by my emotions, I can talk to him. And lastly, and most importantly, this leads us in to our last two points. Your feelings are real. Now hear me, but sometimes you need to tell your feelings how to feel. We've talked about this so many times at Living Hope. Your feelings are real, but sometimes we need to tell our feelings how to feel. We can't deny the reality of what this guy was writing about, what he was feeling and enduring. But what we see in this passage, kind of tucked away and hidden, if we're not paying attention, is he refuses to allow himself to sit there. Too often as Christians, goodness, we like to sit in the deep end and wait around in the emotions and the cesspool of our negative thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Jesus didn't create you to sit there. It's okay if you need to be there for a moment, but sometimes you need to tell yourself to get out of there. And that's what this author is doing here. And I want to show this to you. This is so important when it comes to lamenting. Because what he does in the midst of the proclamation of his feelings, I want to show you two things. He proclaims truth, and he also continues to pursue God. He proclaims truth, and he continues to pursue God. He's telling his feelings what to feel. Let me show you this. Verse 1, look at how he starts in verse 1. Lord, God of my salvation. So before, down in verse 3, he ever expresses what he's feeling to God, he starts in verse 1 with proclaiming what is true. He uses first off, Lord, personal name of God, Yahweh, covenant Old Testament name. What does it mean? It means God is a promise keeper. What he said will always come to pass. He doesn't break promises. So he says, covenant God, Yahweh, who are you? You are the God of my salvation. There's this messianic tone there with the author. 
What does he know? That God promised eternal life to those that are his. And he's a covenant keeper, a promise keeper. He knows it's true. And he says, Lord, before I say anything else, I'm starting with the truth that you're a promise keeper and you're going to someday bring me to restoration in a place called eternity. I don't think he knew exactly what that was going to look like because they were still waiting on a Messiah. But then he goes on to verse, the second part of verse 1. He says, I, I cry out before you day and night. I know I'm yours, the God of my salvation. I know I can trust you because your name is Yahweh. And because those things are true, I'm not going to stop chasing you despite what I feel. Goodness gracious, that's good preaching. My gosh. It says day and night. I'm persistent. I want my request to reach you. Jump down to verse 9. Let me show you this again. Verse 9. My eyes are worn out from crying, Lord. I cry out to you all day long. I spread my hands to you. I mean, he's just spent five verses saying, I feel abandoned and I feel dead and life is falling apart and your wrath is against me. But then in verse 9, he, he reminds his heart again of what? I'm still going to pursue my God. He says, I'm to the point of tears. I just imagine this individual crying so much his eyes are swollen shut almost. He doesn't have one more drop of tears to cry anymore, but he refuses to let his emotions be his sole focus. What's his sole focus? Chasing his God in the midst of his emotions. In the midst of what he's feeling, he's still chasing God. Look at verses 10 through 12 in 88 there. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up from you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? What's he, what's he saying here? Uh, my life feels like it's at the end. It's that same emotion expressed in verse 3. I, I, I'm good as dead. I can't take anymore. But then he says, um, if my life ends, though, God, I can't praise you anymore. Like, if I die, then I don't have this life to praise you any longer. Now, you may, I read that to my wife last night, and she was like, wait, what, is that? what are you talking about? We're going to be in eternity with heaven for Jesus praising. That's what Revelation talks about. We've got to remember something here. This is written from a, a pre-Jesus standpoint. We're not going to dive into this too much, but this was a, a pre-Jesus individual writing, waiting on a, a coming Messiah. He, he was waiting on God's final victory that would be found in Israel's Messiah. So all we know is that this guy believed that he was going to die, and then he would go to the place of the departed spirits. What's his point? Dead people don't praise God. Can we agree with that? I've never been to a funeral, I've done so many funerals before, where you see somebody in the casket during when they're singing Amazing Grace, where the guy in the casket raises his hand, he's like, me too, me too, Lord, uh, me too, praise Jesus, wave that hanky. Right? That doesn't happen that way, why? Because dead people don't praise God, and that's how he feels here. Yet verse 13, goodness, we're getting after it. Verse 13, but I call to you for help, Lord, and in the morning my, my prayer meets you. God, I feel this. Dead people don't praise you. Your wrath is against me, Lord. This, everything's falling apart, but I'm still going to call for you. I'm still going to pursue you. Why? Because your name is Yahweh, and you're a covenant keeper, and you're the God of my salvation. I'm going to remind my heart what is true. He's still calling to God. Let me sum this up. Let me put a nice little bow on this for, for us, and then we're going to take it right to Jesus. I want to show you how where Jesus is in this passage. Friends, lamenting in the Scriptures is more than expressing feelings of grief, sorrow, and pain to God. That's part of it. And that's a significant part of it for the believer. We need to do that more with our God. But lamenting in Scripture 
also is us reminding our hearts who our God is when we question who he is. That's lamenting. We've all been in those scenarios and situations where we question God's goodness. We question why he's bullying us. God, it sure does feel this way. But like the psalmist says, you're the God of my salvation. He, he reminds himself who God is when he questions who God is. I have to tell my feelings how to feel sometimes. Keep going there. It also reminds our hearts of God's closeness when he doesn't feel close. Lamenting is reminding my heart of my God's closeness when he doesn't feel close to me. Lamenting in the Christian life forces us to feel our emotions and feelings. Yes, we need to do that. But it also forces us to focus back on Jesus. And to sum it all up, lamenting is this. It's clinging to the promise that our God is the God of salvation. And the pain and the grief and the sorrow that we feel and that we endure will ultimately be resolved in eternity, and we can take that to the bank. Why? Because he's Yahweh, and he's the covenant-keeping God. He said so. He's the God of my salvation, period. I may feel it. I may experience it. I may question it. But I know what's true, even when it doesn't feel true. I know what's right, even if it doesn't feel right. I know what he said, even when I question what he said. Why? Because he's Yahweh, and he said so, period. Let's point it back to Jesus. Lastly, lamenting reminds us of God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. Sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. I, I can't explain to you this morning with the time that we have, or even if we had weeks on end, why God allows these types of circumstances in our lives, why he allows us to feel these feelings, I don't know. But I do know that the truth of God's word says in James 1.4 that he uses them to mold us and shape us and form us and grow us into the likeness of his son. That in his sovereignty, God chooses to use suffering for our sanctification. I don't know why he does it, but he does. Peter said it in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. He said, friends, brothers and sisters, fellow believers, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes to test you as if something unusual were happening. In his sovereignty, Peter says, God has allowed suffering. We can't fully explain why this side of eternity. But what are we supposed to do? We rejoice as we share in the sufferings of Christ so that we may also rejoice with great joy when Jesus' glory is revealed. What's Peter point us to? God uses these circumstances, the emotions, everything surrounding them to point our affections to heaven. When we suffer in this life, it's supposed to remind us, I wasn't created for this world. Peter said, no, 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 I'm just a sojourner. I'm passing through what I'm experiencing. I wasn't supposed to, but I'm on my way to heaven. Amen. And heaven awaits the follower of the believer. Romans 8, verse 18 Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Friends, remember this. In the midst of the walls crashing down and the seeming wrath of God, sometimes it seems like it's against you. P.S. It's not. Jesus endured that. It's everything going on around you. Understand this, that on the cross our Jesus defeated death, hell, and sin for all eternity. And sometimes we need to lament. That is true. But then remind your heart of what is also true, that we live victoriously. Paul said in Colossians that right now I'm seated with Christ on high. That is a future reality that I get to claim in the present. 
that Jesus saved me. He's defeated death. He's defeated hell. He's defeated suffering for all of eternity. And although that's a future reality I'll experience, it's a present reality that I can also claim right now. And friends, you may feel like you are in the pit, but as the psalmist reminds us here in Psalm 88, yes, we need to lament from the pit. That's okay. But while you are in the pit, lift your eyes to the heavens as Hebrews tells us to do, to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's going to make things right, and we focus on him. And I tell my heart, yes, you may be hurting now, but Jesus is going to fix it all someday. And I rest in that promise, and I rest in that truth, and I rest in Jesus. That's how I lament. What was our first quote? The Bible's God talking to us. Yet in the Psalms, we learn how to talk to God. Our feelings are okay. But in the midst of your lamenting, don't forget, proclaim truth and continue to pursue God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that even in a, a difficult psalm, that God, we still see the presence of the gospel. We still see the presence of what is true, that Jesus has declared the victory over all things. And because that's true, we can trust you. God, I pray for my friends and the heavy hearts that are in this room today. So many things going on with family and work and circumstances, everything surrounding, Lord, where so many of us probably are just driven to this point of lament. God, in this, this season of lamenting that we may feel, would you also comfort us with the future victory and the present victory we found in Jesus? And God, I pray for anyone here that maybe doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. Maybe they can't think of a time where they've willingly given their life to you the Bible says that they're separated from you. But God, that when we repent of our sin and we confess our sin and put our, our faith in Jesus, that we can have a restored relationship with the God of heaven, the God of the universe. God, I pray that they would do that this morning. God, Lord, I pray now as we sing that our songs are a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven, Lord, that they're echoing the praise that you deserve as we talked through last week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Thank you.